We're in Isaiah 10, but I want to look at two verses real quick on the screen from John 14 and 16. Jesus himself said these words before uh, being crucified, just before. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. The world gives peace in a certain way. Don't let your heart be troubled. Let's stay here on the screen a little bit. Troubled or fearful. Troubled. This word troubled in the Greek is torasso, which literally means to be thrown into confusion. So you're saying, I'm giving you this peace. Don't be thrown into confusion. Just hold on to me. Trust me. I have peace that passes understanding. Or fearful. One definition of, of fearful is to lose all sense of courage. So he's saying, don't get confused. Don't lose your courage. Here's why. I am here to give you peace. And really peace in abundance. Let's go to the next uh, verse. Later on, this is really the same. John 14 through 17 are just beautiful. One, some of my favorite chapters in the Bible. In 1633, Jesus is really trying to assure his disciples. And he says, look, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world... The world's version of peace, right? In this world, you will have trouble, confusion, chaos. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And the beauty of the Christmas message, he overcame the world by coming into the world. And when, I, I love this, and we're going to look at that tonight. What is this peace? How can we attain it even in the here and the now. I was reading a book, again, called Prayer by Ronald Roheiser. If this is something you're interested in in the life of prayer, I would highly suggest. It's literally called Prayer. It's, been, it's such a good short read. But he was talking about in this book that I was reading this week how the disciples were just so drawn to Jesus. And it wasn't because he had power to just make sure no conflict was around him. What really attracted the disciples, and I think it's what attracts you and attracts me, it's not that his life was easy. And the reality is conflict followed him every day of his life, but confusion never did. He always had his mind, his heart set on the will of God and knew where he was going. And his courage never left. He always was courageous. What he had was this peace about him, this presence about him. And he's saying this presence in John 14 and 16, this presence I've been living out and walking among you, I now give to you. Here's the quote from Ron Rollheiser I thought was just so stinking good. It says, the power they admired, them being the disciples, the power the disciples admired and wanted was Jesus's power to love and forgive his enemies rather than embarrass and crush them. What they wanted was Jesus's power to be big hearted, to love beyond his own tribe, to love poor and rich alike, to love inside of charity, joy, peace, patience, goodness, long suffering, fidelity, mildness, and chastity despite everything within life that, milita that militates against those virtues. In other words, he's saying what the disciples wanted when he said, teach me how to pray, wasn't these miraculous power to just make sure life was easy, but this ability in the midst of the chaos to bring that sort of peace and that sort of love. And this is the Christmas hope we have, and I want us to dive into that looking at Isaiah 10 through 12. Tonight's promise, especially this side of heaven, is not that no conflict will follow you. In fact, if you follow Jesus, conflict will follow you all of the days. Just read Luke 2 and um, Simeon and his declaration to Mary. But in many ways, it is an absence not of conflict, but of confusion. In many ways, it's not an absence of conflict, but it's a presence of courage. Like Psalm 23, right? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. So I'm still going to walk through it, 
But I have peace because I know who is with me. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. So the title of tonight's passage is Peace, Not As the World Gives. Let's look at that tonight. I really hope we prepare our hearts and learn about this peace not as the world gives. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace and for your mercy and for your kindness tonight. God, I know that even uh, in the midst of our own congregation, not only are we battering, uh, battling coronavirus, but we're also battling the stomach bug, and the flu. And, and so, God, I just pray that our people would be healthy this week as we celebrate Christmas. God, I'm grateful for this passage. I'm grateful that you prophesied your birth 700 years prior, and it still has so much power for us today. And I ask you, God, that our hearts would be prepared and ready. May we walk away from here knowing the Prince of Peace and walking in that peace that passes all understanding. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says? Amen, amen. So the question tonight is, how does Christmas give us a peace that the world can never give? So if you remember, we started in Isaiah 7 a couple weeks ago. And really, Isaiah 7 through chapters 11 is what a lot of people call like a messianic pericope. It's these chapters put together looking forward to the coming of Christ. And so Isaiah 7 is really about the Messiah is about to be born. So it's all about a prophecy. And so he's saying, look, there is hope because the Messiah will be born. Isaiah chapter 9, which we looked at last week, it, the Messiah is now born. According to Isaiah 9, Messiah is born, and now he's declaring this Messiah to be king. So not only do we have hope, but he is a good king, a righteous king. We have joy. Tonight, we're going to look at Isaiah 10 through 12, mainly Isaiah 11. So now we see Isaiah, uh, Messiah was about to be born. Now he's born. Now in Isaiah 11, Messiah is ruling and reigning. And by the way, Messiah is another phrase for Jesus. So because of that, not only do we have hope, not only do we have joy, but because he is ruling and reigning. And I would say here and now, we actually have peace. So Isaiah is asking the questions humanity keeps asking. Why is there so much pain in the world? Why can't we ever reach utopia? Why doesn't politics give us what we want? Why do the politicians always lie, right? Why are all of these things happening and how come we can't seem to figure it out? And it's almost like we struggle with that question more than ever because we think we're smarter than ever, right? We have more technology, we have more medicine than ever, and yet it seems we cannot achieve this peace. And Old the whole Old Testament is story after story of the people of God trying to receive this peace. But here's the problem. They're trying to receive peace the way the world gives. And Jesus says, I have come to bring peace, not as the world gives, but I am giving it to you. How does the world pursue peace? They, we run from conflict. But you and I know every time we try to run from conflict, we run only to find more of it. We try to run from confusion. We try to find clarity. But outside of God's will, we only find more confusion, more chaos. And we try to run towards courage. We try to be the best. And we only lose the little that we began with. Because here's the problem. Let's put this on the screen. Humanity, you're going to be so happy you came tonight. Humanity is afflicted because we are weak, wounded, and wicked. Merry Christmas, okay? This is the message of Isaiah. Really, like almost all of Isaiah. By the way, humanity, which that's who you are, we are afflicted. And we can all admit that. Yes, there is affliction in the world today. You know why? Not because of out there, because of in here. You and I, we are weak. We are wounded. And we are wicked. Isaiah 10 will highlight our weakness. 
Isaiah 11 will highlight our woundedness. And Google says woundedness is not a word. It's now a word. Amen. It's 2020. We do what we want. And wickedness is found in Isaiah chapter 12. Okay, so let's look at those three chapters. It's really like flyby overview, and we'll be able to go home. But humanity is afflicted because you and I are weak, wounded, and wicked. So those are the three questions. How does the world give peace? How does the world deal with weakness? How does the world deal with woundedness? And how does, it's a word, how does the, you would have thought, you would have always thought it was a word until I pointed it out, okay? So let's just include it in Wikipedia. And then how does the world deal with wickedness? So let's look at question number one. How does the world deal with weakness? We have affliction because we're weak. Therefore, you must get rid of the weakness. The world deals with it by overcompensating. Our strengths finder, right? Let's just talk about our strengths and let's not talk about our weakness, those who are weak and especially feel that, they like to puff themselves up. You hide your weak side. And this is really the context of Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah 10, we now have a new king. So we had been talking about Ahaz. Well, Ahaz has now passed away, and his son Hezekiah has now taken the reign in Judah. Now, here's what's encouraging. You can read 2 Kings 18 and 19 to learn um, Hezekiah's story. Hezekiah actually begins to follow the Lord again. Ahaz did all the bad stuff, remember? Bazooka, right? Or baby, he picked the bazooka, right? He just kept picking the gods of all the Assyrians, the gods of everything. And in fact, it led to Ahaz literally killing his, one of his sons to appease an idol, and it never gave him the peace that he wanted. So Hezekiah finds out about the Bible, says, let's bring ourselves back to the word of God, which some of us as a family need to do, right? Amen. Let's get back to the word. So they get back into the word. They recognize, they start tearing out the temples. They start making their life right. And here's what happens to Hezekiah. It was shocking to him and it's probably shocking to you. And it's shocking to me. Even though Hezekiah is following the Lord, war is still at his doorstep. We tend to think, right? But God, I've read my Bible this whole year. Why is this year so bad? Hezekiah did everything right, and yet everything wrong was still happening. Why? Humanity is weak. We're simply not strong enough to take care of all of our problems. So you have the king of Assyria, this king who tried to have a fake alliance with Ahaz, and now with Hezekiah ruling and reigning, king of Assyria is full on, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. I'm going to destroy the city of God. Why? He claims to be God himself. Isaiah 10, verse 12. Isaiah 10, verse 12 says this. says, but when the Lord finishes all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, look, I will punish the king of Assyria for his arrogant acts and the proud look in his eyes. Read the end of 2 Kings 18 if you have time. Literally, the king of Assyria says, I am God. You just better give up now. I am strong. There's no weakness within me. Jerusalem, surrender. And Hezekiah responds in a really good way. Verse 13, for he said, look, I have done this by my own strength and wisdom, for I am clever. Here's a rule. If anybody claims to be clever, they're not. Amen? If anybody claims to be humble, they are certainly not. Humility is shy that way. I think C.S. Lewis says, humility is shy. The moment you talk about it, it runs away, okay? 
Don't say you're what, you know, all these things. So I am clever. I abolished the borders of nations and plundered their treasures. Here, here's a big thing. When they talk about abolishing the borders of nations, especially in the ancient Near East, they really believed the borders represented gods. So when you go into somebody else's, somebody else's country, it represented a whole other god. So he is saying, I am stronger than every other god of the world because I have conquered. Everywhere I go, I defeat those gods. So he's saying, I am the king of kings. I am the god of gods. So he plundered their treasures like a mighty warrior. I subjugated the inhabitants. My hand has reached out as if into a nest to seize the wealth of the nations. Like one gathering abandoned eggs. He is a poet, okay? I gathered the whole earth. No wing fluttered, no beak opened or chirped. What we have with the king of Assyria is what we do, the world's answer to how he, you deal with weakness. You posture. You act like you're all that in a bag of chips, right? You hide your weakness, you exaggerate your strengths, and you brag. It's like watching UFC every Saturday night, right? I'm gonna, kill, I'm gonna take that guy's head off because I'm the best, you know? And we're like, I wanna watch. It's like we fall for it every time. But you have this king of Assyria who is puffing himself up. Why? When you don't have a God who is strong for you, that's your only option. You have to be strong for yourself. But I'm grateful for a year like 2020 because this year has confronted us with this Christmas truth. Here's the next point. The world's peace cannot overcome our defects. The world's peace cannot overcome our defects. So you have this king of Assyria in 2 Kings 18, in Isaiah 10, he's saying, I am so strong, there is no God like me, you better watch out. And we don't even talk, none of y'all know his name because he rose up and he died. The Assyrians were in power and their kingdom faded away. Why? Because this king, even though he acted like he didn't have defects, he had them. And he could never overcome them because he is no God. What the king of Assyria needed was what you and I need, a God to come and be our strength for us. And I have felt this in my own life. So um, this makes 10% of you angry, 90% of you, uh, 70% of you, uh, what is the rest of the percentage? Right, 20% of you like, yes, Enneagram, okay? And so Enneagram, I've been telling you a lot the past couple of years, I'm a seven, which means I, I'm fun. No, I'm just kidding. A seven, like I'm an enthusiast. I'm an optimist. It's terrible. Like you mentioned anything bad and I try to make a positive spin. I'm really trying to get better at that. But essentially though, I'm a glutton for experience. So this year has been a little bit more difficult, right? Because I'm all about going somewhere else, traveling, having all sorts of fun. Like I just love to live for the moment. Fear of missing out is a real thing. But really notice though, because you know, you're not really missing out when there's no longer things you can go do. My heart is actually kind of not a seven anymore, which really makes me sad because I like saying I'm the fun guy, okay? Not the fungus, the fun guy, all right? So I like to say that, but I recognize what I've been doing. And, and, and I'm saying this because I'm mentioning my defects that I have within my own life. It's really like I have switched from the gluttony of experience to the pride of appearance, which is a three which is my dad, okay? You never want to be like your dad, right? I love my dad. If you're watching online, all right. But you know what I'm saying? Everybody wants to be a little bit different. And I've recognized this year, especially with everything going on, like everything has just been so difficult because I feel like pastoring in 2020 just has revealed all of our defects. 
right? Like, I really feel weak. Like, I really feel, like, am I leading good in this moment? Like, when we made the decision to wear masks in May, to meet here, to do this, to do that, change all the stuff. We've had to pivot in so many ways. And in so many times, I'm just like, I don't know if I'm doing this right, right? And I feel those defects. And I know for me, and I mentioned this to hopefully maybe you can kind of relate and think about what you've been struggling with, is that I think the world says in order for you to attain peace, you have to ignore those defects. You have to just say you don't have those anymore. The reality is you, you can't help but know I'm not doing well. And so with the king of Assyria, he just acts like I, he just ignores it, ignores all the warning signs and just proves to everybody that he's greater than he really is. But Hezekiah has the right response. Hezekiah chapter 10 verse 20 is what you and I need to do in this moment as well. On that day, the remnant of Israel the, uh, and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on the one who struck them, but they will faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. There's even more context in 2 Kings chapter 19 where Hezekiah is met with all of this opposition. And instead of posturing himself, declaring Jerusalem's even more powerful than Assyria, he simply goes to God he weeps. He tears his clothes and says, God, I am weak. I cannot do this. If you don't pull through, I don't know what's going to happen. And that is actually the beauty of Christmas. Because Christ came to conquer for us, our only hope is not to hide our weakness, but to expose it. Here's the gospel truth. Here's the Christmas truth when it comes to our weakness. We don't conquer our weakness. Hear me. We confess our weakness. We don't conquer our weakness. We confess it. Notice the contrast, what you have with the king of Assyria. I am God. There is no borders. I, I am able to defeat anybody in my path. My name will be remembered forever. Hezekiah says, I am not God, but I know God. God, I am weak. God, our people are sinners. I am a sinner. I cannot do this on my own. God, if you don't show up. You know how God showed up? He winds up wiping out 185,000 men of Assyria by one angel because Hezekiah says, I can't, but I know you can. And this is the good news of Christmas. Every other religion says, don't be weak. Hide your weakness. Get stronger. Do more. Do good deeds, and then you'll make it to heaven. And Jesus, the way of Jesus, said, no, 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 I have come for the weak. In fact, the beauty of the manger is he literally comes in the most weak and vulnerable position by becoming a baby boy. So our gospel, we need to take hope this Christmas. We do not have to try to conquer or posture our weakness. We simply have to confess it. And in our confession, the way of Jesus comes and is our strength. He is our provider. He is our provision. You with me? Nobody. All right, now, number two. So that's how you deal with weakness. The world says you overcome it. You just got to deal with it. You got to hide it. But the gospel says you just simply have to confess it. There's no way around it. Receive the grace that God has for you. And some of us need that word. We feel this anxiety. We feel this fear because we know we're not enough. And instead of running from that feeling of knowing we're not enough, actually sit there and say, yes, God, I am not enough. And it's in those moments that God proves true and he is genuine and he is strong for us. So that's how we deal with weakness. We don't conquer it. We confess it. Here's the second thing. How does the world deal with woundedness? 
Isaiah chapter 11. Maybe uh, flip over uh, your Bible to the next page. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 11. How do we deal with woundedness? Well, you revenge. You attack before getting attacked. You keep the tally. You make sure, even though, you know that phrase, you should see the other guy, right? When you have a black guy, you should see the other. This is how we deal with our wounds. Read Isaiah 11, 1 through 6. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. I just want to even point that out real quick. A shoot will grow from this stump. Literally what he is saying is Israel became to the point where they knew they were so weak. They were no longer this blossoming tree. All they were was a stump. But that is when God does his best work. So a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Referencing Jesus. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and strength. A spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight, again, we're talking about Jesus here, will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. And he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness, you actually see this in Ephesians 6, which we talked about during quarantine in like uh, April. Righteousness will be like a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be uh, a belt around his waist. Last verse. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. I want you to see, this is actually a picture of shalom. This is a picture of peace. The leopard will lie down with the goat. People in Queen Creek are like, I get it. The rest of us are like, what? You know what I'm saying? We're like, that's amazing, right? The calf the young lion and the fattened calf will be together and a child will lead them. That's a lot. What is this saying? What it's referencing is there has never been a time in history up to this point where a king actually ruled rightly. So especially for the people in Judah, they knew oppression, injustice, unrighteousness was simply a way of life, right? The poor never get a leg up. Those who were accused of something they never did wind up going into prison. So to be in society is essentially to be in oppression. So, so Isaiah seems crazy. He's saying, no, I'm actually prophesying when this king comes, peace will rule, and this king will actually rule rightly. Typically, when rulers come to power, the first thing they do, anybody seen Godfather? One, two, three. That's what you're doing this week, okay? So what happens is when they come into power, what do they do? They take care of people, all huh? right? You know what I'm saying? I put a horse in their bed, huh? Why do you, why do you come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding, huh? You know what I'm saying? I have three daughters. I get to do that three times. Praise the Lord. What are you doing on the day of my daughter's wedding? You know, if they get married, I need to add that caveat. But anyways, so typically when rulers come to power, they spend all their time avenging those who didn't like them which is kind of like politics. Uh, so, so in the Christmas, this cycle of oppression is actually obliterated. So when this king comes, he's not going to be obsessed trying to make sure he, oh, this guy just looked at me wrong. You're gone. This guy did this thing wrong, right? He is going to rule righteously. The poor are actually going to get helped rather than being used as a promise, a campaign promise in order to be loved. He's actually going to care for them. Okay, so this was shocking to the people, and we actually have yet to see a king here on earth lead this type of way. And we've seen that. We've been confronted with this truth. How does the world give peace? Look, the world's peace cannot cover, overcome our damage. We have damage. There is hurt done to us and through us, 
And we are in a situation where there's not enough medication to fix it. There's not enough management to fix it. It's never enough. At the end of the day, no matter who's ruling, we are still in damage. And we feel it. And we're wounded. And we're angry. And we're hurt. And the Christmas message is saying that won't always be the case. And in fact, you and I, if we believe in Jesus, there is a way God graciously wants to heal your wounds today. And it will be in fruition when he comes back again. I think one of the great misfortunes of today's culture is our anti-history narrative. What I mean by that is, again, the world thinks we can achieve peace by just kind of getting rid of damage. But we recognize the world can never do that. You need to have a king who does it, and we have yet to have an earthly king who is able to overcome the damage. And so we've actually created an anti-history narrative, which essentially says anybody in history, all of the winners were the wounders. So if they were the one who conquered land, they're actually always the bad guy because in order for them to win, that means they had to have wounded. Are you with me? This is why we're having a movement right now. Let's tear down all the statues. Now, I'm by no means saying everybody's perfect in history. We're all messed up. There's one person who's perfect. His name is Jesus. That's why we're gathering tonight. Amen. But it's very scary when we tear everybody down from our history because we somehow think by just removing those leaders of the past, we'll no longer feel damaged. We assume now I will be complete, but you will recognize no matter how many statues we tear down, there is still that emptiness, there is still that woundedness, there is still that damage, there are still so many areas in your life and in mine that need healing, and tearing down our past will never do what it's promising to do. But why? The world's peace. Jesus says, I have not come to give peace as the world gives. But the world is frantically looking for peace, and so it's trying to erase history. What happens, of course, is we're fearful of the past. If we just get rid of our past, maybe we won't feel so wounded. The wounds remain. And so Jesus is the the promise because he is the one who actually takes care of the damage in a way nobody in history has ever taken care of the damage. And here's the answer for you and the answer for me. What do we do with our wounds? As Christians this Christmas, because Christ came, we don't revenge our wounds. We repent of our wounding. We don't revenge our wounds. We repent of our wounding. Can you imagine if we all changed the conversation? Instead of trying to get back at other people, we confess the ways that we have hurt other people. And everything would begin to heal itself. But the problem is, The world's version of peace says in order for you to not be wounded, you need to be the wounder. And this is a never-ending cycle of oppression. But the cross, the the reason Jesus came, verse 6, how the world will dwell, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. This peace will come because Jesus finally offers us a different solution, his only peace. Tim Keller, when in doubt, quote Tim Keller. He says this in Making Sense of God. He says, the cross breaks the cycle of oppression. People who are passionate for justice often become self-righteous and cruel when they confront persons whom they perceive as being oppressors. Now, however, believers in Christ are taught to confess that they have wronged God by wronging others who are made in his image. Christians know They have the hearts of oppressors, yet have been saved by grace nonetheless. Therefore, 
even when they confront an oppressor. They may do it with steely and courageous determination, but the gospel teaches to do so also without self-righteousness or bullying. They cannot hate haters or justify oppressing people they think are oppressors. Does that make sense? What he's saying here is the reality because the way Jesus came. Here's what this is saying. Here's the Christmas message. Here's why it's such good news. Jesus breaks the cycle of oppression because every other king comes to rule and reign and he has an agenda and tears everybody down. When Jesus came to rule and reign on the cross, he took all of that revenge and put it on himself. No other king has done that. The reason he came was instead of not to have that list and, and judge these people, make sure that guys they can get them, huh? What he does, that's so terrible. What he does is he brings it on himself. There will never be a king like that, but the king of kings. And this is why we have peace. This is why we have an answer to our wounds, because he finally stops this perpetuating cycle of oppression. And now, as a community of God, not all, all of history is not just oppressed versus the oppressor. It is those who have received the grace and those who have not. And may we be people who receive and extend grace because Jesus himself came down for that to be a reality for you and to be a reality for me. And let's go to the next one. How do we deal with weakness? We don't conquer it, we confess it. How do we deal with our woundedness? We don't revenge it, we actually repent of our own doing. Now, how does the world deal with wickedness? Of course, you shift the blame. Right? You change standards of morality. You don't talk about wickedness at all. This is where we're at today. Isaiah 12 is actually very much, it's a song of praise because of what the Lord has done. But within it, if you're not careful, you'll miss this. It actually is acknowledging so much of our own wickedness. Roman, I mean, Isaiah 12, verse 1, it says, On that day you will say, I will give thanks to you, Lord, although you were angry with me. Your anger has churned away and you have comforted me. What? A God who's angry? Why would God be angry? Because of our sin. God has to judge sin. He has to be angry towards unrighteousness or he himself would be unrighteous. Verse 2, indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust in him and not be afraid for the Lord, the Lord himself, because God was the one who literally came down. He is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation, saved from my own wickedness, saved even from myself. I love verse three. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And on that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, proclaim his name, make his works known among the peoples, declare that his name is exalted, sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, citizen of Zion, for the Holy One of Israel is among you. This God with us, right? In his greatness. I love this. This anger has churned away. The scriptures are clear. He is angry with sin. In fact, he is angry with the sinner. This does not sit well with our culture today. I'll explain why. There's actually two really world of thoughts when it comes to sin and wickedness. The first guy is St. Augustine. Okay, if you're smart, you call him Augustine. If you're weird, you call him Augustine. Okay, no, okay, no, St. Augustine. And then you have Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Okay, have you heard of him? I probably butchered it, but I'm hopefully it's, it's Jean-Jacques 
Rousseau. Okay, so you have St. Augustine, and actually in AD 400, he wrote this autobiographical work called Confessions. Anybody heard of it? It's a fantastic work. Um, he talks about his sin, his depravity, how he met salvation, you know, Jesus, and how he um, enjoyed all the fruits of salvation. It's, it's an amazing biography, autobiography. But he really talks about when he was a child, there was this moment when he, in, during his like teenage years, he actually stole um, pears with a group of friends. He saw a bunch of pears, and they said, you know what, let's just take it. And so he took a bunch of pears, and they ran away, and they laughed, and they thought it was the funniest thing. And so he actually started to reflect about those actions later on in his life. And he's like, why did I steal those pears? I didn't need those pears. In fact, I had pears at my own house. It's not like those pears were better. In fact, they weren't even that good. Mine were so much more superior. Augustine said, I wasn't even hungry. I simply am wicked. Like, I just do bad things because I do bad things. So he recognized at that moment, at his core, when he was born into this world, he, begun to, he was born into sin because of Adam and Eve, and he recognized this phrase, total depravity, I am depraved. I am a sinner, and I have fallen short of the glory of God. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he also wrote Confessions, an autobiographical work written in the 1700s. And it, interestingly enough, he talks about how he stole asparagus for a friend. So again, this is your 1,300 years in separation. So he talks about, and I really think this, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is really the thought of our day, and really hopefully we can kind of go back to St. Augustine. So he starts to think through, why did I steal this asparagus? Which, by the way, underrated, I love asparagus, okay? Praise the Lord, welcome to First Baptist, okay? It's fantastic stuff. Okay, now, he actually begun to really think through and process, why did I steal this asparagus? And he came to the conclusion his friends made him do it. Society made him do it. At his core, he believed he was good. And at the core, society was the one who was depraved. Now, that feels good to say society is the problem. But it doesn't actually bring forth the solution that you and I need. The world's peace, which we're seeing blared through today, the way you achieve peace is to blame everybody out there. Now, there is problems out there, and we do need to fix them with righteousness. Amen, right? But it certainly begins in here. And it has to begin with us admitting our wickedness. Here's the world's peace. Here's what we're confronted with the truth this Christmas. The world's peace cannot overcome death. Our Bible says wickedness leads to death. Death entered the world when sin entered the world. We're doing our best to avoid death. We're doing our best to try to um, live for as long as possible. But the reality is we will always die because we are always living in sin. Again, this isn't popular, but this is the truth. This is what we see in Isaiah 12. We actually find joy when you recognize God was angry with you. But when you actually confess that wickedness, he now showers his comfort and love towards you. This is why Jesus had to come. He had to come because God was angry and he had to take this wrath on someone. And in his grace, rather than putting it on you and on me, he sent his own son to take that wrath in our place so that God can now transfer no longer his anger towards that sin, but now he can give you his love to you as his son. This is why Jesus came. So this is the solution we have this Christmas. Next slide. We don't blame our wickedness. We name it. 
We don't blame our wickedness, we name it. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the Christmas gift, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is why we gather and sing. We're saying, oh, this is amazing. I don't know any of the Christmas carols. Like, I'm always like, you know, I'm just whatever. But we're singing all those songs because we're saying, God, I am weak. God, I am wounded. And in fact, God, I am wicked. But you came down and you changed all those things for me. This is the beauty of Christmas. This is why the angels were so excited because they knew humanity is afflicted because we are weak, we are wounded, and we are wicked. And no matter how hard we try, Isaiah, the whole Bible keeps saying, it shows story after story of people saying, I'm just, I'm not going to be weak anymore. I'm going to be strong. And they fail and we don't remember them anymore. I'm not going to be wounded. I'm going to wound. And they wind up getting even more wounded. I'm not wicked. I'm good. It's society's fault. And yet they find themselves hurting the ones they love because we cannot get rid of this problem on our own power. And that is why we celebrate Christmas because we can never get up to God. So God came down to us in weakness, in woundedness. And he actually became wickedness, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So that that would no longer be your story and no longer be mine. Luke 2, verse 10. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. Why are we afraid? Because we're afflicted. Why are we afflicted? We're weak. We're wounded. We're wicked. We're in a big mess. Our pets' heads are falling off, right? Like all of the things, okay? For look. I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, the city of peace, a savior was born, I love this, for you, who is the Messiah. Oh, Messiah, I've heard that phrase in Isaiah. He came for the weak. This Messiah comes for the wounded. This Messiah comes for the wicked. The Lord, verse 12, this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby. What? A baby, right? A baby wrapped tightly. I love that little, like, Mary's a good mom. You know, I think that's what that's saying. Like, she knows how to wrap. Have you tried to wrap wrap those around a baby? It's impossible, right? Wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God. They couldn't help it. They jumped in. They're like, okay, we were getting pumped about this. Y'all don't even know how great Jesus is. We're going to show up now. We're no longer invisible. And we're just going to praise God. And they praise God saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace. This peace that no longer has to, this no longer this affliction of because of our weakness, our woundedness, our weakness. Peace on earth to people he favors. And friends, we cannot end tonight without asking, are you among the people he favors? This peace is on offer to the whole earth, but it's specifically towards the people he favors. Who does God favor? The world will tell you the strong, the mighty, those who defeat those in battle. The scripture says, no, no, no. God doesn't favor those who conquer their weakness. God favors those who confess their weakness. What does the world say? 
You know who God favors? He favors those who revenge their wounds. He favors those in power and makes sure everybody knows he does what he wants. No, 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 no. The, the, the scripture says because of Jesus, favor doesn't come to those who revenge their wounds. Favor comes to those who repent of their own wounding. And such good news. Who does God favor? Who's going to receive this kind of peace? The world is saying, you know how you get peace? You blame your wickedness. It's out there. All of our problems are because of them. So if we get rid of them, everything will be better. But the problem is there will always be a them. There will always be somebody else that oppresses you. It will never end. But the gospel says, no, it's not. God doesn't favor those who blame their wickedness. It's crazy. It seems like a cheat code because what God does, he favors those who just name their wickedness. They admit it. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I bring no other argument. I bring no other plea but that Jesus died and he died for me. This is the hope of Christmas. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives because they can't overcome They can't overcome a lot. They can't overcome death. The world's peace cannot overcome your damage. The world's peace cannot even overcome your defects. But the peace that I give, Jesus says, is different. So don't be troubled. Don't be fearful. He says, I've told you these things, John 16, so that in me, in Christ, you may have peace. In this world, the world's way of peace, you will always have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He overcame the world by coming to the world, dying on the cross, raising again, defeating all of our enemies, and taking that revenge that you and I deserve, taking that wrath that you and I deserve. He became wicked so you and I can become righteous. Sounds heretical, but it's the gospel truth. But here's the thing. And you'll know this on Christmas Day. In order to receive a gift, you gotta open it. You gotta, it's not nothing you did, but you gotta receive it. And I know some of us in this room have been toying around the things of God. We like the idea of a good God. We like the idea of Jesus, but we have not taken that step to confess our own weakness. Some of us in this room, we haven't taken that step to repent and start to name the ways we've actually hurt others, including God. We haven't had the humility to say, you know what? I am not good enough. In fact, it's not just that I'm not good enough. I am wicked and deceptive and evil in my own powers. I don't even trust my own heart. And it's at that moment, God gives you a new heart and a new life and a new direction. But you have to to confront that. You have to get rid of the world's version of peace, of blaming and hiding and avoiding. And we embrace it because when we do that, that is when God embraces us. I love it. Merry Christmas because... Humanity was afflicted because we're weak, wounded, and wicked. But because of Jesus, Jesus came to be afflicted by becoming weak, by becoming wounded, and by becoming wicked so that you and I can have life, peace, joy, hope for all eternity. But you gotta receive him. You 
got to name it. And I pray that we all do. 